Hi, this is Lola Chambliss. I'm an associate professor of neurosurgery and residency program director of neurosurgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. You are listening to Interview with the Surgeon with the Surgeon Agent. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining Interview with the Surgeon to welcome Dr. Lola Chambliss, Residency Program Director of Neurosurgery at Vanderbilt. Doc, how are we doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. So kind of getting started, what were your goals and aspirations during your residency and how did those change throughout your fellowship? Well, I really wanted to be a tumor surgeon um, when I started residency and that, that really didn't change. Um, but as I got comfortable with some of the more straightforward neurosurgery cases earlier on in my residency, I found myself drawn to the more and more technically complicated cases. And so I got really interested in doing um, really the bigger skull-based cases as time went by. Um, I also you know, got into residency and in the first few years thinking that I might wanna run a basic science lab um, as part of my career as a surgeon scientist. And I had done that in the past, uh, working in a lab obviously as a more junior person. And I started doing um, some of that work midway through my residency during a research rotation. And I um, also kind of realized that that just wasn't what really got me up and you know, out of bed in the morning. That wasn't what I was as excited about as uh, some of the clinical research opportunities that I found. I sort of changed direction there um, in a way that I think was really healthy for my long-term goals. And in fellowship, you know, neurosurgery fellowships are short. Um, and so, you know, I, I spent a year in, uh, or a little, little less than a year in Australia, um, in what was a very clinical fellowship. Um, and what I'd say, you know, change for me there was just um, realizing kind of how far we could push ourselves in tumor surgery, um, getting a better sense of what kind of the far reaches of, um, of treatments that we could, could potentially offer to patients and made me a more aggressive tumor surgeon, um, a little bit less conservative, but uh, it really helped me to kind of get a sense of what, um, you know, what, what could potentially be done if you um, kind of changed your surgical goals a little bit and, uh, and thought about things from a slightly different perspective. Can you kind of talk about your mentality heading into the job search process for your first time and how that perspective changed the beginning years of your career? Yeah, so my job search process the first time uh, was pretty minimal. <laughs> um, so I was a resident at Vanderbilt and when I was a fifth year resident at uh, the beginning of that year, the chairman at the time, George Allen, uh, kind of called me up at about 5.30 in the morning, one morning as I was brushing my teeth, and we were having this visiting professor in town uh, who was the person I was interested in doing a fellowship with, and he said, Dr. Allen said, uh, hey, so I'm thinking you could do the fellowship in Australia with this guy, and you could just come back here and be on the faculty and do this type of cases. How does that sound? And I was like, well, I mean, sure, that, that sounds great. And he's like, all right, well, that's what the plan's going to be. <laughs> so while that was certainly not written in stone and I'm always very cautious, so I really wanted to keep my options open. Um, you know, that was definitely plan A for me in the last couple of years of residency. And, uh, you know, by the time I was a chief resident, um, the new chairman, Dr. Thompson and I were, um, you know, kind of inking that deal. So, you know, while I minimally explored other options, I really didn't explore them all that much, to be honest. Um, and so that did change. And one of the things I think that was important for me while I am still at Vanderbilt 10 years later, um, is that in those first couple of years of my uh, time as an attending, I did go and do some preliminary exploration of other jobs. After I'd been at Vanderbilt for a few years, was starting to you know, get offers recruited at different places. And 
I went and, uh, and looked at some of those positions, you know, um, in, in a way that I think was open to the fact that I was happy with my job, but also that I needed a better sense of what my value was, what the market looked like, um, and what, you know, it really needed to be sure that I should choose to stay rather than just staying because it was convenient and easy. And uh, at each of those turns, I've made the decision to stay where I am because I do think it's a great location for me um, in a lot of ways. But it was helpful to take some time to do that. Um, and I did that, as I said, in a really open way. So I, you know, very close relationship with my chair has been a mentor to me for 20 years. When I have gone and looked at other opportunities, it's always been um, with him informed about it. And to me, I think that's been really important um, to helping him see that I'm trying to grow professionally, but at the same time, not using these as opportunities just to negotiate for something different at home. Can you touch on your journey from starting as a young intending and then becoming the program director? So um, I was always really interested in training and education. Uh, and even as a chief resident, I kind of revised a lot of the ways that we did things for medical students, for example. I loved that opportunity. So as soon as I came in as an assistant professor, um, it was definitely with the mindset that I wanted to be a program director someday. And I was really lucky to have um, an existing program director at that time that really saw that in me uh, and was really supportive. And so that first year, I didn't have a title, um, but I just tried to find any work that I felt, felt would be meaningful for the students and the residents and take that on. And so very shortly after that, I got the title and then I started to get paid a little bit for that and made my way through the path of being an assistant pro, uh, program director to the associate program director and then finally the program director three years ago. Um, and so I've had a lot of great mentorship from other educators along the way. And I think they've really, you know, I've been lucky in that they saw that in me and really helped to develop that um, in a way that's been successful for me and hopefully for the program too. What would you say were some of the keys of your success that shaped your early career that allowed you to get to where you are today? Um, I think one of the traits that I'm proud of that I think has been the most, um, probably the most useful for me in academics is that uh, I'm pretty good at identifying a good idea when I see one. Uh, and I think that I'm someone who really elevates the people that I mentor, um, the people that are training under me when they have a great idea. And so, you know, one of the most pivotal um, moments in my research career was as a, you know, maybe associate professor, a few years out, you know, four or five years out um, of training, working with a medical student, spending a year with me on research. And we had a whole plan for her and what she was going to do. And she came in my office and said, you know, I've got this other idea, thinking about using machine learning to solve this type of problem. And I was like, what is machine learning? And she was like, well, I was going to show you if you don't mind. And I was like, sure, of course, let's see. And she spent about 40 minutes explaining the entire field <laughs> of uh, advanced data analytics and machine learning to me. And by the end of that conversation, I was like, well, yes, this is what we need to do for you for the year. And also I should probably change the entire direction of my research program into this. Um, you know, she, it was just, it was apparent to me that she had a fantastic perspective and was bringing an outstanding idea to me and that we had an opportunity to really be on the leading edge of doing something cool in neurosurgery. And so, you know, I think one of the great things, the fun things about being in academics is that you don't even have to have all the great ideas yourself. If you can identify them and you surround yourself with really bright, creative people and you create an environment where those people aren't afraid to just come in your office and say like, what do you think about this? When they know I know nothing about it. 
um, you know, I think that's a, an incredible path to success. Yeah. As a program director, what advice do you have for the graduating chief residents and fellows entering the professional job market for the first time? So I'd say, first of all, don't panic. <laughs> um, I see a lot of fear right now when I talk to people coming out. Um, and I think that's because there's kind of been a market contraction uh, around COVID. And so the job market has not been as open and um, exciting to look at as it has been in the past. But the reality is we still don't have enough neurosurgeons for the number of, you know, for the population of the United States. <clears throat> we are vastly underrepresented. So there are lots of good jobs. And also the first job that you take doesn't have to be the perfect job. It doesn't have to be the last job. It, it really needs, you need to look at what you need in that first position. And that may not be the place you stay forever, but you need a place where you can operate safely and develop a practice and have support to continue to develop your skills, which usually means having some good mentorship and having support to do continuing education, go to courses, go to meetings, et cetera, because you're still learning those first few years. Um, so you really need that. And you need a location that, you know, you and your family can tolerate and will work for you. Uh, you need to be less focused on the exact dollar amount of what they're going to pay you in that first year. Because if, if you're in the right place and you're doing a good job, you're going to continue to be promoted and do well. If you choose a job where they're offering you a tremendous amount of money straight out of residency, there is usually a problem with that job. So, you know, everybody has been training for so long and been dealing with a ton of financial constraints. It's really appealing to look at some of those numbers but I think you have to look more for those softer, um, softer issues and, and find a place that's going to support you because you're going to be paid perfectly well to, to live with it and try to live within those means early and keep things flexible. You know, look for a job that doesn't immediately narrow your practice. So don't take a job where you're not going to do, you know, any cranial neurosurgery um, just because you maybe did a spine fellowship. You know, make sure you keep your most marketable skills up. And so that means being able to manage neurosurgical emergencies kind of across the spectrum of what we do, because you're never going to be good at them again if you don't keep doing those cases after you finish training. As a program leader, what are you looking for when medical students are applying for residency spots? Yeah, that's a tough question because there's a lot of things. Um, I'd say if we are looking for one or two primary uh, kind of core capabilities. We want to find people who are team players and we want to find people who are coachable or teachable and have a teachable spirit. Um, I'm much less concerned about somebody's core you know, knowledge about neurosurgery because uh, we're, we're really good at teaching people neurosurgery. Like we got that part down. You don't need to come to us understanding all of that, right? Um, but I, the people who struggle are the people who are hard to teach because either they don't take feedback well, or they're defensive when we, you know, say, Hey, you made a mistake here. They lack that ability to look inside themselves and identify opportunities to improve. Um, they don't seek out mentorship. You know, those are the people who are challenging to train successfully. So, you know, so having that kind of open-minded spirit about wanting to get better and, and taking, you know, whatever you can get from any case and any, you know, any interaction um, to improve yourself is kind of key. And then that team player thing is really huge for us at Vanderbilt. Um, we are just not, you know, not one of those institutions where there's a dog-eat-dog -dog academic philosophy um, where, you know, I'm only 
as good as, you know, as I am in comparison to those around me, right? So we were a place where people thrive when they recognize that, you know, if their partners and colleagues are doing well, they probably are also doing well and, um, you know, they give back to each other. And so identifying that spirit is really important. And we try to find, you know, we're interviewing applicants right now and we're trying to find evidence of the places that they've, you know, kind of demonstrated that or experienced that in earlier portions of their lives. You know, sometimes it's, a sports team. Sometimes it's, you know, an important, you know, volunteer mission that they took on with a group of people that, you know, that, where they really developed that skill of working together. Um, so we try to get to the, to the bottom of that, really. As a female leader in a residency program, what advice do you have for the next generation of females or think about either going to medical school or starting the residency process? Well, um, you know, it is, it's totally doable. It's not always easy. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a mom of two um, and I think I'm really engaged in my daughter's lives at, at the level that I want to be. That doesn't mean every single day it's balanced just the way it should be. But when you look at, you know, a month in review, you know, the amount of time that I've spent with them doing the things that they um, wanted and needed, you know, versus the amount of time I've spent on my job feels right. I also should say not every woman is going to be a mom and is going to have that as a priority. But I kind of jumped to that because in my life, that was where the difference between being a woman and a man in neurosurgery really became more obvious. In residency for me, being female was not altogether very different, I think, than being male, um, at least in my institution. But the act of having kids and becoming a mom really did change my experience a lot. You know, I think that... Um, Unfortunately, sometimes some neurosurgical leaders, uh, most of the male, sometimes think that we've kind of solved this gender issue in neurosurgery or that it's mostly fixed and it's better and 15% of neurosurgery residents now are, are women. And so that's pretty good. And, and it must be that things are fixed. The reality is things are not fixed. There's still a number of additional obstacles that um, women face, much, many of which are somewhat invisible to those around us. Um, and I think it's also worth saying that that's probably true for a lot of other groups in neurosurgery. It's not just women. It's very, you know, being female is a very obvious minority position in neurosurgery, but there are other positions being underrepresented, you know, racial or ethnic minority, or, you know, being, a, you know, a, um, you know, coming from all variety of different backgrounds that may be sort of invisible uh, minorities also face significant burdens that the rest of us probably aren't even aware of there. Um, so I think it just takes, you know, having, having a real dedication that you want to make it, get, make it done, finding some mentors. You know, certainly if you're a woman coming into medical school, you don't need to have all female mentors. You need to have, you know, a variety of mentors, but I think it's helpful to have at least a couple um, that are able to really get to know you well and able to be really honest with you about their own experience um, so that you can understand a little bit more about what you're facing. Because if you're prepared for it, it's a lot easier to handle than when it comes as a surprise. Now, there's a human component to being a neurosurgeon. And so what type of advice do you have for the next generation when they deal with unideal situations in the OR? Yeah, you know, I think that it's a skill dealing with the challenges, you know, mistakes, intraoperative problems, um, and, you know, loss of patients or devastating complications. Nobody comes into neurosurgery with the skill set of being able to handle that. 
um, you know, unless maybe you've been a Navy SEAL or something like that in an incredibly high stakes environment earlier on in your life. You have to be in a program where you develop those skills over the course of years. Um, nobody feels comfortable that first time that they all of a sudden encounter, you know, horrendous bleeding that they're not sure they know how to stop. Uh, it takes experiencing that in a mentored environment over and over and over again, where you get the chance to try, but you've also got the, you know, a mentor and attending standing over your shoulder who, you know, in their heart can step in <laughs> and make things better uh, to learn how to handle that in a calm fashion. And, and, you know, I think it, the vast majority of people do, you know, it's, um, it's interesting to me at this, you know, this point in my career, really even early as an attending, one of the things I realized was that when things got really bad in the operating room, you know, the big unexpected problem, usually it's bleeding in my world, tumor surgery. Um, you know, I actually get super calm. Uh, that's my physiologic response. Like if you were checking my heart rate, it'd probably drop down to 50. Um, and that's just the way that I've kind of developed, uh, you know, mentally almost from a meditative sense to say like, you know, I don't need to leap into this. I don't need to panic. It's going to be all right. You know, let's put a little patty on this bleeder. Let's take a minute. Let's get the room ready. Let's notify everybody. Let's turn the music off or whatever it is, you know, and then let me think through how to handle this. And sometimes I try to handle it for five or 10 minutes. It's still not working. I go back to that place and say, all right, what am I, you know, let's, put some pressure on this and think about what we're missing. Maybe you're calling in a colleague to get their opinion, et cetera. Um, to me, it's actually now one of the most calm and meditative parts of the job. And uh, it's funny as an aside, I'll say I, I do, I'm a, a not very good, fairly beginner scuba diver, um, <laughs> but I really like it. And uh, I had a really scary scoop, my most scary scuba diving experience a couple of years ago. Um, and I was feeling really sick. It was, there were sharks. It was the whole, the whole nine yards. And uh, the place I went, you know, you can't talk to anybody while you're scuba diving. So you're really in your own head about what's going on. And the place that I went to was I thought, well, how do I handle this in the operating room? And I just had that sense of, okay, things are bad. Things are scary. What do I do? You know, deep breath, like super calm response. And then how do I function from there? And it was so helpful. <laughs> so if you want to get better at scuba diving, I recommend becoming a neurosurgeon. So I know you're very involved with the CNS. And can you talk about the different roles that you've been in and how you're helping the next generation of young neurosurgeons? Yeah, I've been incredibly fortunate to have um, you know platform within the CNS and to have been brought into the board um, by Asheron from Jefferson when he was um, the president-elect. And I've gotten to have a ton of different roles in the organization, and I just have really enjoyed the professional development I've gotten from it, as well as just the incredible friends um, that I have on the board and uh, in the other committees. And so, you know, I, I ran our data science effort there for a couple of years, thanks solely, of course, to that medical student, <laughs> Whitney Milstein, who introduced me to that concept some years ago in my office. Uh, ran the resident committee, um, so vice chair of the education committee, was co-chair of the leadership institute. And um, so, you know, I think it's very intentional. The CNS leadership tries to put you in a variety of different places so that you learn about different parts of the organization as you're coming up the ranks. Um, so now I'm in the position that I've always wanted to have, which is uh, as chair of the scientific program committee for the annual meeting. And it's a big job. There's a lot to do. It's a lot of detail, which appeals to me. Uh, but also just one of the most impactful jobs in neurosurgery. You know, this is the largest meeting of neurosurgeons in the world. 
and have the opportunity to try to guide the development and the presentation of scientific content um, to that audience. It's just, you know, an incredible privilege. Um, and so, you know, within that, I try to really speak to all the various subspecialty aspects in neurosurgery, which are not mine, but make sure that they're all getting represented well in that setting. I, of course, have a particular um, interest in the, those young future neurosurgeons, medical students and the residents. And so um, I've put together the last couple of years some programming for them, both virtually and at our annual meeting. that has been really successful. Uh, and I'm looking forward to really fleshing that out and um, making that a, a bigger focus of the 2022 meeting in San Francisco. Um, which is going to be really cool. I think, you know, I think in some ways med students haven't been sort of a primary stakeholder of the neurosurgical organizations in the past. The reality is, you know, these are the future people leading those organizations and they have needs that aren't necessarily so obvious to us that are, you know, 20 years down the line. Um, and, and they're just so fun to be around because they're so enthusiastic and excited. Um, and so I always find that my love for the field and specialty is, um, you know, it's just reinvigorated by my interactions with them. And so having them more engaged in the meeting, having them learn about neurosurgical science and technology, and then giving them some opportunities to get good mentorship, regardless of what school they're in, um, but by identifying national mentors that can help them, to me, it's just a total win-win for the specialty and for the students. So I'm really privileged to have a chance to kind of have a platform to help make that reality this year. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams. Thank you.